Good morning. And be, uh, before we start with prayer, um, we have one prayer request that those on our email list received last night. Lisa Foote, who is uh, for many years lived in the community and came every week and then moved to Florida a sh- short time ago, had, op- had open heart surgery or heart surgery this past week and has had complications in the ICU. And she's emailed and, and our family emailed and asked that we remember them in prayer, remember her in prayer. So let's remember Lisa. Um, and I don't know any more details about what hospital or anything like that. I just know it's in Florida somewhere. So let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who has created your universe to operate in harmony with your principles of love. As we come together and study this week, we do want to remember Lisa and ask that your healing uh, presence be there and you intervene as you know is best in her circumstance and um, restore her to health as, you know, as, you, as your will be done. Be with the family and give them strength to to encourage her at this time and the doctors and nurses that they might know the best interventions to make in her circumstance. Pray you'll be with us as we study today that we will have greater insight into how your kingdom works and how we can be participants in it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, last week, I just want to say thanks to Leon, Mass Check Taught, and I watched it on the uh, video this week, and uh, it was quite profound. For those who haven't watched it, it was quite profound. You, I encourage you to go onto the website if you haven't seen it, and, and uh, you'll definitely notice his style's a little different than mine, but he has some very deep things to, to say. This week, we're doing lesson number six in the quarterly uh, Feed My Sheep, the first and second uh, books of Peter, and the title is Suffering for Christ. And the memory text is 1 Peter 2.21, which says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. What does it mean that we were called to suffer? Why were we called to suffer? It says, because Christ suffered for us. Why did Christ suffer for us? Because he loved us? For sure. What was his suffering? Oh, so what was the cause of his suffering? Were any of the following contributors or causes of Christ's suffering? Physical mistreatment and abuse, obviously. Failure of people to recognize and respond to truth. Did that cause suffering for him? Seeing his creation ravaged by sin. Rejection by people, especially those of the Jewish nation, those claimed to be, claiming to be his people. Would this cause suffering for him? Rejection and abandonment by his disciples at Crucifixion Weekend. Betrayal by Judas. Going without food in the desert, physical fatigue and exhaustion. The human condition that he assumed and came to cure. The separation he felt from his father during crucifixion weekend. The fear of dying and the agony and temptation to stop death from taking him. Did this cause suffering? Did he have fear of dying? Did he agonize over it in Gethsemane? Yeah. How about the fear he might never rise again? Was he tempted with that fear? Do you, any of these things cause suffering? All of these things cause suffering? And as you look at these types of suffering, can we categorize suffering into different types of suffering? And I want to categorize these. First, let's just put under the umbrella, all suffering only happens because sin exists in the world. If there had been no sin, there would be no suffering. Everybody agree with that? Okay. 
But under that, now that sin's in the world, there's different types of suffering. And there's the suffering of righteous people who are being attacked by unrighteous forces, whether those are human forces or demonic forces. This can cause suffering. And this is what Peter is actually referring to in the memory text for this week, that the righteous will suffer as Christ suffered. He was righteous, and he was being persecuted by the unrighteous, and that if you're a righteous person, you'll be persecuted too. This is one type of suffering. Why did Jesus say that when this type, when, when this type of suffering happens, we should turn the other cheek? Is this the common Christian teaching in the world today? Well, let's see if I can make you think at a different angle. When is it proper, appropriate, righteous, the best course to not turn the other cheek? To defend others. When it's in the best interest of others. God's design. So, parents, have you ever had a child in a temper tantrum striking out at their parent to hit their parent? Is it in the best interest of the child to let children hit their parents without discipline, without restraint? Is that in their best interest? No, so there's clearly... But notice, if you intervene with a child who's striking out at their parent, is the intervention to take vengeance upon the child, to inflict harm upon the child. Or is the intervention, as I've heard some of you say, to protect the child for the best interest of the child, to restrain the child. How about a psychotic patient who is seeking to harm you as a healthcare provider, a family member, uh, someone in in the community, uh, maybe themselves? Do we just turn the other cheek and let them, or do we intervene and, and restrain? And what is the goal again? Any intervention at that point, are we seeking to harm? Are we seeking to, to punish? Are we seeking to, to retaliate? Are we seeking to protect? So when does Jesus' injunction to turn the other cheek apply? When does it apply? I've always believed when you read the Bible, you're reading about yourself, not anybody else. So I would say that it applies when it happens to me. Yeah, in what circumstances though? One of the things we're told is heat burning coals upon their head. There's instances where the only thing that will stop evil is a lot of good. To retaliate for exactly what they've done to you only only prolongs that or, or in, increases the anger and the hatred. And you get the Hatfields and McCoys going on. But sometimes to turn the other cheek would be to amaze someone else and cause dissonance in their thinking. Why are they behaving in a totally different way than we normally would? So who said if everyone practiced an eye for an eye, the whole world would go blind? Who said that? Anybody know? Gandhi said that. Now, Gandhi, was he Christian? So then he, he, he can't practice the principles of turning the other cheek. He's not allowed. <laughs> or did he practice those principles? Did he teach those? And did they have a societal effect, a world-changing effect, really? An empire was changed by that. But how can he do that if he's not Christian? A design law. You know, Gandhi actually also said that he read the New Testament and read about Jesus Christ and liked Jesus Christ, and he would be a Christian if he ever met one. I'm referring to Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. 
when it speaks of a time to fight, a time for war, when, it, when will those times come if we're constantly turning the other cheek? When is it appropriate to fight back? So we, now we want to talk about it not on an individual level, we want to talk about it on a national level. There's a, is there a difference between what we as individuals choose to do in governance of self and what nations choose to do? Do we? And I think oftentimes we, we, we confuse those. What, what, a, what a national policy is, is might not be the same thing, thing because you know, the Bible teaches us that human governments are put in place to restrain and set structure, but Jesus said none of these governments are representative of my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. I don't, I don't practice these methods. This is how my government works. So are we to practice in our personal individual life the methods of beastly systems, or do we recognize that human governments are going to practice methods because it's a world that's corrupt and you can't have a human government that is only governed by godly people? Does anybody believe in this world will have a government only governed by godly people? No. So they're going to be corrupt. These human governments are going to be corrupt. So I always try to differentiate setting policy for nations versus setting policy for my own personal conduct. They're not the same for me. And as an individual, then we see stories like Desmond Doss, who was willing to serve his nation and, and put himself in harm's way, but was unwilling to take another life. That was his person. There are many other stories. Sergeant York, you know the story of Sergeant York, very devout Christian person who struggled with whether he should go to World War I or not. But taking up, he didn't want to take a life. And, and the, the, he agonized over the principles of the, so forth. And in his conviction, it was he was not going to go to take life. He was going to go to protect life. He was the most decorated war hero of World War I. But his goal was, I'm going to do, to do what I'm going to do to, to bring an end to the violence and stop it. Not because I want to kill these people, but this was a method of restraint in his mind. Am I to judge him? Is, is, is one person's heart more virtuous than the other? Or were they both trying to do what they thought was in harmony with the principles of God in a world to bring violence to an end? So suffering, we're talking about suffering. One is when unrighteous people attack righteous people. Another, though, is suffering that occurs because disease and decay in nature. Because sin in the world, all nature groans under the weight of sin. There's aging, there's poisons, there's toxins, there's injuries, there's accidents. And all these things that are, are happening because the whole world is out of harmony with God's design can cause suffering. And then there's suffering that occurs because of seeing sin destroying an object of our love. Whether it's a pet that gets hit by a car. Whether it's a child, a, a brother, a sister, a family member who is involved in an addiction or some process of self-destruction. And we see the sin destroying their lives. And, and because we love them, that, that causes us to suffer. And then suffering that occurs because of our own carnal fallen natures tempting us from within and the application of God's healing solution, the battle that goes on. You know, it says in, uh, we're talking about Peter, and First Peter 4.1 says the following, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, 
Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Done. Done with sin. What does that mean? So take the example of somebody somebody with an addiction. Addictions are destructive. They're hurtful. They're damaging. If they go into a program of recovery, will they face cravings at some point? Will they then have to make a choice? Imbibe or say no? If they choose to say no to the craving, will the flesh suffer? And as long as the flesh is suffering, are they engaging in sin or are they done with sin? Done with it. This is what it's talking about. Now, it may not be a physical addiction. It could be a behavioral addiction. Gambling. Pornography. could be an anger problem that people rage and explode and blow up and, and, and yell at people and curse. And if you're in a position where somebody offends you and you have this rage and you want to curse them out, but you restrain yourself and you say, no, your flesh is now suffering. <laughs> yeah? Have you ever been in that situation? And you got to go cool down, you got to count to 10, you got to, when your blood pressure's going like this, but you, but you, some, some force is there to help you, maybe the Holy Spirit's there giving you some wisdom and say, don't do it. And after you cool down, you go, oh, thank you, God. I'm really glad I, I didn't do that. <laughs> I've been in that situation. I would encourage you to meditate on that text about the suffering. Because this is a battle between the, the carnal nature and the spiritual man, the limbic circuitry of your brain where you get your moods and impulses and the higher cortex. So just give you an, in, an insight into how your neurobiology works. If you're getting on the interstate and as you're getting on, somebody cuts you off and almost hits you and you get that angry urge to maybe say a bad word. And then you go, that's your limbic system. That's your, that would be neurobiologically where that aggressive, carnal, selfish is coming from, limbic system. But then if you go, wait a second, hold on, no. You know what? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't behave that way. And you restrain yourself. That's prefrontal cortex. That's higher cortex. That's behind your forehead. Sealing in the forehead in the New Testament. This is, this is where our characters are transformed. There's a, a battle going on. So what do you think, with all these different types of suffering, caused Christ's greatest suffering? The seeing of the misrepresentation of his father by people around him? Other thoughts? And, and I'm sure that caused great agony for him. The battle of human nature. The battle within? Yeah. In Gethsemane? Well, Hebrews says that once may his character was made perfect through suffering. And that was Hebrews five, yeah. eight, nine. I think that was his primary primary battle was a daily, hourly, by the minute um, desire to serve and save self. Yes, go ahead. I think it's the greatest suffering between dead on the cross while he forsaken Okay. that God his father turned his back on him. Okay. Alrighty. And I think this is very, I just want to encourage you to really contemplate. Don't disagree. Don't disagree. But at the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why you have forsaken me, what did he say shortly thereafter? Into, the, into your hands, I commend my spirit. But what was going on in Gethsemane? Now, on the cross, he was bleeding. For sure, he was bleeding. But why was he bleeding on the cross? 
physical wounds. Because he had been physically wounded by evil human beings who whipped him and, and pierced him with, with nails and, and, and put thorns on him. So he's bleeding because of actual injury to his body. Was he bleeding Gethsemane? Yes, he was bleeding. Why was he bleeding in Gethsemane? Was he being physically attacked in Gethsemane? Physically attacked. Spiritually and emotionally. Yeah, so, so in your own personal journeys, what has caused you the most suffering? When something physical goes on with you? Or when something deeply tears your heart apart? Which is the worst? And, and there, believe it or not, there are some people, uh, because their journeys in life have been not necessarily as long as others yet, particularly the younger you are, that haven't had a deep heart-rending loss or experience yet. So they've only known physical, really. But if you've been in a place where you've had that real deep heart-rending pain, you know it's much worse than the physical pain. So this is out of the book Desire of Ages, which is kind of an expanded Bible commentary on the life of Christ. And I'm just going to jump a few paragraphs in this chapter of Gethsemane. And, and it, it paints a picture, and I think it does a really good job of trying to bring us into maybe what Christ was experiencing. Christ went a little distance from his disciples, not so far that they could not see or hear him, and he fell prostrate upon the ground. He felt that by, that by sin he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony, he must not exert his divine power to escape. This agony. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. As man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Oh, that's an that's a, that's a, um, inflammatory statement. That's a statement that, that gets confused. And may people, many people misunderstand the wrath of God. See, how do you define wrath? God, angry, using his power to inflict harm like a human being would do. When you become mad, you rage and you curse and you swear and you just beat people up. Is this how we see God in this moment? He's wrathful? Or do we take Paul and the other places in Scripture where the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men to suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.18. And there he goes on to tell them because they suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They made images with their own hands. Verse 24, 26, 28. God takes action. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. You see, when you love, when you are a being of love, and someone rebels against your love, and you think about this in your marriage relationship, you love your spouse, and your spouse rebels against your love, and, 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 and doesn't want to be with you anymore. Ultimately, what is the most wrathful thing you can do in the end, if you're still a being of love? Let him go. Let him go. Set him free. And so Paul tells us in one eighteen, wrath, God's wrath is being revealed, and then what God does in twenty four, twenty six, and twenty eight, and then in chapter four, verse twenty five, he uses the exact same language in Greek. The English translators translate it differently. It's the exact same in Greek as he did in twenty four, twenty six, and twenty eight, talking about Christ at the cross. Therefore, God gave him up at the cross. The English often will say God delivered him over. Or things like this. But God gave him up. Exact same language. And so what did God do to his son at the cross? He surrendered Christ. Okay, this is his wrath. He, he stops intervening. He stops working to hold at bay what sin does. I'll keep reading on the, uh, skipping down a couple of pages. Again, the son was seized with superhuman agony. And fainting and exhausted, he staggered back to the place of his former struggle. He's, 
His suffering was even greater than before. As the agony of the soul came upon him, his sweat was as if it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. The cypress and palm trees were silent witnesses to his anguish. From their leafy branches dropped heavy dew upon the stricken form, as if nature wept over its author, wrestling alone with the powers of darkness. A light shone forth amid the storming darkness of, of this crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of his father's love. He came to give power to the divine human suppliant. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as a result of his suffering. He assured him that his father is greater and more powerful than Satan, and that his death would result in the other utter discomfiture of Satan, and that the kingdom of this world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He told him that he would see the travail of a soul and be satisfied, for he would see multitude of human of the human race saved eternally. Christ's agony did not cease. But his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had not, had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth calm and serene. And you see that in the description of what happened before Pilate in the, in the tribunal. A heavenly peace rested upon his bloodstained face. He had borne that which no human being could ever bear, for he had tasted the sufferings of death. For every man. What do you think that means? What do you hear in that? I love this description. It kind of brings you in and lets you feel the agony. Now, are there... Did Christ die in Gethsemane? Did he... But, but then how can this author suggest he tasted uh, the sufferings of death for every man? How, how could that be? He said that himself. Ah, so the, the scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.14. Also tells us in James chapter 1 that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drugged away and enticed by our own evil desires. So if Christ was tempted in every way just like we are, and we're tempted from our own desires, does that mean Christ's humanity tempted him from within? Isn't that what we're seeing in Gethsemane? Did he have powerful human emotions that, that he struggled against, that were asking, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to die. I'm scared. Yet every time the temptation comes, what does Christ do? Not my will. Thy will be done. And so ultimately, you're exactly right. The, the carnal nature, that drive to survive, protect number one, act in self-interest. Christ is crucified. And ultimately, in Gethsemane, he faces that and he makes the choice. He makes the decision. I will give my life. No one can take it. I will not act to protect it. And that's where his choice was made. And he, and he accepted the outcome. And that's where the depression and agony, uh, the depression and despair lifted. And he had that peace. He'd accepted So why did Christ experience this agony? What was causing it? So I've gotten a couple of emails recently asking, why was it that the father had to disconnect and, and hide himself from his son? Why? Who's the source of life? Can death of a perfectly sinless being occur in the pre- if God stays connected to them? Christ couldn't complete his mission. 
Why didn't Christ put a stop to it? Why didn't Christ act to say no? Why didn't he use his divine power to stop death from taking him? Partly his idea. It was his idea. But, but what was the reason? Submission to the Father's will. But what was the Father's will? Why was it the Father's will that Christ have to die? Trust Him. I mean, demonstrate His love to the... So, okay, so one, one element to demonstrate, to reveal the character of God, one element. So if Christ acts to stop death from taking Him, whose life does He save? This is an act of selfishness. Selfishness... Uh, Satan alleges that love is not real, that God is not love, that selfishness is, is the way the universe runs, and God is truly selfish. So if Christ acts to save himself, this is exactly what Satan wants. It vindicates Satan, it proves that Satan's right, and it undermines it and misrepresents the true character of God. Number one. So you're right about that. But there's another reason beyond that. To save others, save us. Yes, what, what would have been the problem for humankind other than the misrepresentation of God? Was there another fundamental elemental problem that would have prevented salvation of the race if Christ would have acted to save self? Human nature would have been permanently terminal. There you go. There would have been no remedy for our condition. What is the remedy for our condition? Ask it another way. There's the ransom metaphor is often used in Scripture that Christ came as a ransom to ransom many. What does a ransom functionally do? It's the price necessary to free one being held in captivity or in bondage. We agree that's what a ransom does. So the question, what is it that holds human sinners in bondage? There's two things, actually, two chains that hold us in bondage. Selfishness. Our own selfishness, which is our carnal nature, and the lies about God that we believe that keep us from trusting him. Satan is the father of lies. So Jesus, you've already mentioned a moment ago, he came to reveal the truth about the father, and the truth about the father destroys the devil's power. He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. The devil is the power of death. What's the power of death? John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ is now sent. Eternal life equals knowing God. Then eternal death equals not knowing God. Then devil's power is the lies that he tells about God that keep us from knowing him. So one thing is what you've already said. He reveals the truth about God to destroy the lies that frees us from one chain that binds us. But even if we're free and we now see God for who he is, we still have another problem. We have a carnal nature. We have a nature that, that is fearful and self-centered. And thus we need a new nature. And the first Timothy, Timothy, second Timothy 1, 9 and 10 that by his death he destroys death and brings life and immortality to light. What is the cause of death? Oh, what? Maybe ask it the other side. What's the basis of life? The law of life. The law of love. The principle of giving. God's design for reality. And therefore, deviations from the design. Selfishness, which is the infection, the carnal nature, is the basis of death. Christ destroyed death by being tempted in every way just like we are yet overcoming with love and in his humanity. Notice this, guys. He was not tempted in his divinity. He was tempted as a human being. And in his humanity, he loved perfectly. Thus establishing a new humanity. This is what Russell was referring to in Hebrews 5, 8, 9. That once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. 
Bible perfection is not referring to sinlessness. Bible perfection is referring to the maturity of a perfect Christ-like character. And guess what? Character cannot be created. God can create sinless beings. He did that in Adam and Eve. He did that in the angels in heaven. Character, though, is developed by the sentient free will choices of the free being. And Christ, no human being after Adam's sin can develop a sinless character. But Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He developed that perfect character on our behalf. Yes? I'm following you, but what about Elijah? What about Elijah? I mean, it was before that demonstration was revealed. Who created time? Does God live confined to time, or does he live outside time? Yeah, I, I catch it. There. No, no, wait, let me, let me, we have to answer these questions. Does he live, is, is he constrained in a linear existence? It says in First uh, Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? Why is it unapproachable? It's just so bright, the wattage is too high, or is this light metaphor for infinity? He's an infinite being, and we're finite beings, and finite beings cannot enter infinity. It's beyond us. It would consume us. It, it would fry everything because we can't process it all. God lives in infinity. Therefore, God wanted the close relationship with his created beings who live in linear existence in time. One member of the Godhead leaves infinity and interacts on the level of his creation. That member is the bridge builder, the go-between, the mediator, Jesus. He's the one who leaves infinity. He's the only one who's seen the Father, according to John. The book of John, no one's seen the Father except the Son who's left the Father's presence because he can enter infinity. So God lives outside time. He experiences past, present, and future are all equal to him. So now, if there is no remedy for a condition that exists anywhere in time, it's never been procured, it doesn't exist, past, present, and future, it can't be applied to anyone. But once Christ achieved the remedy in his linear existence on earth, God who lives outside of time can apply it anywhere in time. So he applies it. How was Elijah and Enoch healed? Through the accomplishments of Christ by partaking of what Christ achieved via the Holy Spirit working in them. But Christ still had to achieve it. That's my understanding. If you have a better understanding, I'd like to hear it. But that's how I'm currently co- comprehending it. And there's biblical support for what I'm saying. With the, Lord, uh, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He is not constrained in time like we are. So why didn't Christ put a stop to it? One, because he would have misrepresented the Father. And two, he would have never procured what we need. Now, in that same book, Desire of Ages, later in page 761, the author writes the following. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. This man has not to give. I'll pause before I give the next sentence. Why does the law require righteousness? For the same reason that the law of respiration requires that you breathe. The law of respiration requires that you breathe. Why does it require that? That's how you're constructed. That's how life is built. The law requires righteousness. Why? Because that's how God built reality to run. That's how it's built. But man does not have this to give. So Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. And when you put that together with the New Testament, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. Peter says, we have the law written in the heart and mind. We have circumcision of the heart. We get the mind of 
Christ. All the metaphors are teaching the same thing, an actual reconstruction and rebuilding of our hearts, minds, and attitudes. I'm going to just throw this question out. We're not going to talk about it. It's one for you to take home and think about. Okay, we'll talk about it briefly. Because <laughs> I don't think I... If Jesus suffered in our place, which I believe he did, then why do we have to suffer? If Jesus suffered in our place, to cure the remedy that we can't, why do we have to suffer? He, yes? You were, when you were talking earlier about the, the term suffering... I was thinking, can we think of it in a more positive sense? Suffering sounds so negative. Tension. So we know that like bones actually need stress in order to maintain their strength and in fact become stronger. We become stronger in Christ with that tension. Oh, I like where you're going with this. So in this world of sin, is there anyone, any human being who is unbroken by sin? So once there's brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. You have a broken leg and you don't let anybody touch it because to, to put a splint on it and then to put a pin in it, that's going to make it really hurt worse for a short time. And so you, the reflex is, don't touch it, leave it alone, don't touch it. But if you don't let anybody touch it, you remain chronically in pain and disabled. If you get the splint, get the pin, get the physical therapy, there is pain in that process, but that ultimately leads to recovery and healing and eventual restoration. So once there's brokenness, there are no pain-free options. Partaking of Christ will require that we confront the carnal nature. We will suffer. But that doesn't mean it's harmful. That doesn't mean it's damaging. It doesn't mean it's destructive. Two hands, Wendell and then Stanley. Getting away from broken bones. Uh, <laughs> the orthopedic surgeon says. <laughs> uh, it says, you know, all nature groans and yes. is suffering. Yes. It's not inflicted. That's right. That, that's my point. There's no pain-free options for us now. We, uh, we, so we have a choice. Do we participate in a healing plan that will have some pain involved but leads to a time when we will, all tears will be wiped away, all disease will be taken away, one day there will be no more pain and suffering, or do we reject the healing plan and only experience worsening pain and suffering? Suffering is a natural state in a broken world. That's, okay, Stanley. The promise isn't that he will change our circumstances. Promises that he will change our life. He will recreate us. There will be a new creation. And in the meantime, our circumstances are a result of the sin and the infection of the world. The promise is not to change circumstances, but to change your life, to recreate your life. Temporary. Yes, yeah. So the promise, and as I tell my patients, we are not promised in Scripture new physiology here and now. New physiology comes when the, this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption at the second coming. What we're promised now are new hearts and right spirits, new minds, new characters, new attitudes, as you were alluding to. Yeah, that's the promise. Sunday's lesson, it says, uh, this is talking about the first couple of centuries after Christ when Christians were being persecuted by various civil governments. Now, why were the Christians being persecuted? I want you to kind of put you in the context here. Were Christians being persecuted in the first two century, first century, second century, because they were inciting rebellion, like the Jews who are constantly going to war and trying to throw off the Romans that, and ultimately led to the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Is that why Christians were being persecuted? Because no. they were inciting rebellion? Were, were they being persecuted because they were carrying out acts of terrorism? 
Were they desecrating pagan worship centers and painting graffiti on Roman statues? Or the Christians calling boycotts of Roman businesses? I'm just pointing out that some things that religious organizations and things sometimes do, Christians weren't doing any of this. What were they doing? Preaching Jesus Christ and his methods of love. In an empire, now get your mind around this, empire of Rome with many gods. Rome had 12 primary gods. In the Roman Empire, 12 primary gods. Jupiter, Juno, Mars, Venus, Minerva, Neptune, Ceres, Vulcan, Diana, Bacchus, Mercury, and Vesta. And they also had minor household spirits in the local communities that they would worship to protect their actual homes. And then in addition to those, they eventually accepted Isis, Pan, and Mirthris as well. All these different gods are being worshipped in Rome at the time of the first and second century when they're persecuting Christians. So with a culture of so many gods being worshipped, why were Christians being persecuted for introducing a new god? Yes? It wasn't just a new god, although you know, it certainly was that, but they were preaching a new kingdom. They were preaching about God's kingdom, which could have been very threatening. Okay, specifically how... What, what kingdom were they preaching? Do, this is why I go back to the questions I asked. Were they preaching a kingdom like the Jews, a civil kingdom of taking over the government, of throwing off the Roman yoke, of rebelling against the civil order? Or in fact, do we find the New Testament just the opposite? Obey the civil order. Be good citizens. So you're right, they were preaching a kingdom, but functionally it wasn't a political kingdom. They were not, they were not initiating political antagonism. Do we see anywhere where the apostles of the New Testament church sought to get a new governor in Palestine, sought to get different senators elected into the Senate in Rome? We don't see them taking any political action. But you're right. I think what you're saying is very true, but we want to be clear on what it meant. Good point. Other thoughts? They were destroying the other 12 gods. Okay, now, now, now you're getting somewhere. So how so? How are they doing that? Only one true God. Only one true God. Usurps the twelve gods. Okay. And the kingdom is is eternal. So it it supersedes the earthly kingdom. Yes. They won't get any more sacrifices for other gods, so they won't make any money. Oh, interesting. You know, maybe, maybe there was a point here to be made that if enough Christians convert, then all these houses of worship that were charging money to get sacrifices paid. In other words, there's an economy of paganism and the financial economy of paganism was being threatened. I think that's an interesting insight. There's probably truth in that as well. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably truth in that. But also, isn't there a great controversy going on over how many different pictures of God really are there? There's only two. The God that Jesus revealed and then all the corrupt versions. Now, at their core, we have a God who is love, who creates reality to operate in harmony with his own nature of love. And then we have gods who operate like sinful beings do, who impose rules and threaten you with punishments and have to be bribed or paid off in some way with sacrifices or offerings or appeasements or something to induce them to do good. Because they're not really good in their heart. You have to persuade them to be good to you in that circumstance. And every one of the false gods are like this. All the ones I just read in Rome are like this. Christ, though, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is, this is attacking the very foundation of Satan's government. And thus Satan inspires all of his legions, both human and demonic, 
to attack the truth. I see a grand and great controversy going on here. Not, not just, but I think the economic issues were involved. I think Satan played on that. But Christianity presented to God stood in marked contrast with all the others. And Jesus, remember, said, those living in darkness, they don't want to come into the light. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, says, when Peter says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He is echo, uh, but echoing the words of Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He then says that Christians should not fear those who are attacking them, but they should sanctify, revere Christ as the Lord in their hearts. So question, why should Christians not fear those who are attacking them? And I really thought about this this week, and I came up so far with three elements that overcome fear for us. Three elements overcome fear. Now, you all know the first one. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Love, perfect love, casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, I think you have seen my lectures that when your love circuits fire in your brain, they actually turn off your fear circuit, your amygdala. When you're introducing the cortex is active, it shuts down amygdala. And perfect love neurobiologically casts out fear. And if you think in your own life in a moment, when you had a moment where you really loved another person more than yourself, you really cared so much about them, or you were in a moment where you really felt somebody loved you that much, either way, when you feel that love going on, what's happening to your fear? It's going down. Neurobiologically, we, we, can, we can see that happening. Do we see evidence of this in the death of Stephen? Of course we see in Jesus' life, but, but everybody says, well, he's the son of God, he's perfect. But let's look at others, sinners. Stephen, do we see the evidence of love overcoming? Do we see in, the, in Paul's life, prior to Damascus Road, he's willing to kill others and imprison. After Damascus Road, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. Does something change there? Yeah. And then, share you a story about Christian de, Chir, de, de Serge, a French Catholic monk and trapped Trappist prior of the uh, Tibrine Monastery in Algeria. In 1993, with the rise of radical Islam, Father, Father Chaget uh, knew that his life was in danger. But rather than leave Algeria, he chose to stay and continue his witness of, lo- of the love of Jesus Christ. On May 24, 1996, he was beheaded by Muslim radicals. Anticipating his death, Father Chaget had left a testament with his family to be read in the pont in the event of his murder. And here is part of that testimony. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family, to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent but forgotten through indifference and anonymity. I should like, when the time comes, to have a clear space which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and all my fellow human beings and at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. My death clearly will appear to justify those who hastily judged me as naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of it. 
But these people must realize that my most avid curiosity will then be satisfied. This is what I shall be able to do if God wills. Immerse my gaze in that of the Father to contemplate with him his children of Islam just as he sees them all shining with the glory of Christ, the fruit of his passion, filled with the gift of his spirit, whose secret joy will always be to establish communion and to refashion the likeness, delighting in the differences. For this life given up, totally mine and totally theirs, I thank God and you also, the friend of my final moment, who would not be aware of what you were doing. Yes, for you also I wish this thank you and this adieu, to commend you to the God whose face I see in yours. And may we find each other happy, good thieves in paradise, if it pleases God, the Father of us both. Amen. Isn't that profound? How could he write that? Was that inspired by the human carnal nature? Did you hear love in that? Where does that kind of love originate? Where does it come from? Well, he can't have it because he's Catholic. He can't have that love. (laughs) It's not allowed. Is that love restricted to denominations? No. No. Not at all. And this love is not natural. That's supernatural love. That's the love of Christ working in the heart. So, one, love casts out fear. Two, what else? Truth. Truth. First and foremost, the truth about God that leads to trust. Because you said trust. But, but trust is based on a knowledge of the trustworthiness of the one you trust. So, the truth about God. Do you know him well enough, personally, that you trust him with your wealth, with your life, with your family, with your future? Do we believe that God really has our best interests at heart? Or do we, like many of my patients that come in to see me, say things like this, why did God take my child in a car accident? Why did God give my child cancer? Why did God prevent my hu- why did, didn't God prevent my husband from cheating on me? Why did God give me bipolar disorder? I have many patients that say this. If you believe that about God, can you trust him? You cannot trust a God who will kill your children, or give you cancer, or give you mental illness. Or kill you if you don't love him. Or kill you if you don't love him. What kind of emotions do those ideas generate in a person? Fear, and what is fear? How does fear cause us to behave and act? Selfishly. Why do you think Satan infects Christianity with these ideas about God, that God is a source of inflicted pain and suffering? Here's another truth. What does this mean? Jesus said, John, excuse me, Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can kill, destroy both soul and body in hell. What does that mean? Is there truth there? Our individualities. No other, other people, including demon, fallen angel, Satan, Lucifer, human beings, they can harm your body. You can be physically violated. You can be murdered. You can be beaten. You can be raped. You can be crucified. You can be hurt physically. But no other person can damage your soul. 
your psyche, which is the Greek word for soul, your individuality, your character, your identity. No other person can damage that. Only you can damage that. Only you. And you want to see the difference? What's the difference between being assaulted by somebody and you assaulting somebody? Being raped and you going out and raping people. There's a big difference what happens, isn't there? A big difference. One, you may be damaged physically and psychologically and emotionally, but your conscience is clear. You've done no wrong. But when you do that to someone else, there's a corruption in the core self that takes hold. And the third element that protects against fear. So element, love, truth. And the third, purpose. Having a purpose. If we know that our suffering is going to serve a greater cause, it often allows endurance and toleration of the suffering and the sacrifice. You read what I read earlier in the Desire of Ages quote in Gethsemane when the angel came down to encourage Christ. If you go back and read that, you'll see that what this author suggests the angel said to Christ was reminding Christ of all the things that his death was going to accomplish. Well, the Hebrews author said the same thing. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy. What joy? What it would accomplish. The saving. He had a purpose in that. It wasn't purposeless suffering. I have some stories, but I'm not going to go into them now because we're really running short on time and I want to get to something else unless I'm going to skip to Wednesday. Wednesday's lesson is really, really impactful. We could spend the whole day on Wednesday. Judgment of the people of God. In all these passages, the process of judgment is portrayed as starting with the people of God. Peter even links the suffering of his readers to the judgment of God. For him, the suffering that his Christian readers are experiencing might be nothing less than the judgment of God, which begins with the household of God. Therefore, let us... So for another quotation. When you hear this idea of judgment, the judgment of God, do you hear it first through the law, the lens of human laws? How a, a human judicial system operates. Is that how you hear it? Is that how you think of it? So you probably, God is the great magistrate in the side. He's got laws and he's got to oversee and adjudicate those and he's got to uh, find, find guilt or innocence and he's got to, got to give out the proper penalties. Do you, are you processing it through like sinful human beings or do you see him as creator, designer, and then suddenly judgment means something entirely different? Do you see a great controversy involved? And there's two aspects from the design law that we need to look at. First, who is the primary living intelligent being who was first to be judged in the judgment? God the Father. God the Father. Does any of you find that like, no way, no way, you're, 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 you're a heretic, you're way off the reservation. Uh, so let me, who is the one who was first lied about in the great controversy? God the Father. Who was... Uh, what did Satan do to a third of the angels in Adam and Eve to get them to rebel? Lied about God. So you're in that marriage relationship and somebody tells you a lie that you believe that your spouse is cheating on you. Didn't happen, but you believe it. So now you don't trust your spouse and you move out. Your spouse loves you and wants you to reconcile with, with you. What will your spouse have to do? Won't they have to prove their innocence? Isn't it true? So who's on trial? The innocent one is on trial. The one who did no wrong. This is the great controversy. And so we find in Romans 3, 4, Paul writes these words. God must be true, 
even though every human being is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. God must win his case first before any human being. Why? What's the first of the three angels' message? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Historically, completely grossly misrepresented is God sitting in a judicial tribunal looking over records and making guilt and innocent determinations. It really means be in awe of God, be amazed at him, glorify him in the way you live because the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about him and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Worship the designer and reject this dictator view of God that took hold with the Roman church, the Roman empire. Reject it. Come back to seeing him. So why does judgment start with the household of God first? Because the household of God are the ones who recover the truth first. We're the ones who recognize who God is, really is and revealed in Christ. We're the ones whose minds are set free, and thus we make the right judgment first. And having come to the knowledge of God, we go out and spread the light. We're as witnesses, and we tell others. And they then can come to the light and make right judgments about God. That's why it starts with the household of God. But what about the idea of standing before the great white throne judgment? There is this idea in scripture that we'll stand before the great white throne judgment. Again, do you process it through human tribunals or design law? Once you go to design law, it's it's nothing more, seriously, nothing more than standing in God's examination room. Standing in a doctor's examination room. When a doctor examines you, he's identifying everything that's wrong, everything that's defective, every diseased process going on. That's the goal, anyway. He's not as thorough as God is. God doesn't miss anything. And God's judgment is simply his accurate diagnosis of every character. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. Or in the book of Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. There's a judgment of the condition of the heart. Ephraim's heart cannot be broken away from the idols. This is not an infliction. It's not a determination. God's judgment doesn't make it be. His judgment is simply the accurate diagnosis of what is. And what determines whether an individual heart has been transformed and renewed and become like Christ or has hardened against him? What determines that? Is it not ultimately what that individual has judged God to be? I judge him as my trustworthy savior and I open my heart to him and invite him in or I judge him as someone I can't trust. That's why judgment starts with the household of God. And everything cascades from there. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth comes into your mind. You make a judgment about it. Do I trust this God who sent his son, who accomplishes for me, who functions and runs his universe like this, or do I not? And the lesson goes on then to say, in the second paragraph, sin has brought evil into the world, and God's people through the ages have long waited for God to make things right again. What does it mean for God to make things right? Can you think of another word that is often used that, that actually means to make things right? Justify or justice. Now, when you hear the word justice, do you automatically think of making things right, healing, restoring, recovering? Or do you think instead of punishment? That's because that's the human law lens. 
But I would just a couple Bible verses really quick about God's, because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What, what is God's vengeance? Isaiah 1, 24, 25. I will get relief on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. What's happening? This is a doctor saying, I will avenge myself and I will eradicate all the polio virus in you and restore you to perfect health. He's taking vengeance on sin, eradicating sin, not sinners. That's the vengeance. He wants to heal sinners. There's other texts, Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. Strengthen, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear the Lord your God. Uh, the Lord your God will come. He will come with, the, with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer. What's he taking vengeance on? The sickness to set us free. And there's more. I got more in the lesson, but I don't have time to read them because I want to get to another point. Bottom pink section says the following. Think of all the evil in the world that has gone and still goes unpunished. Why then is the concept of justice and God's righteous judgment so crucial for us as Christians? What hope do we get from the promise that justice will be done? You're saving that for two minutes? Yes. And see, these questions reveal the mindset of the ones who wrote the questions. And this is a sad indictment of the depth of the infection of the human-imposed law construct into Christianity. This idea that God functions no different than we do, a system of rules that he must enforce and inflict punishment upon, has been accepted worldwide through all denominations. And it is the cause of the, 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 the paralysis of, Christian, of Christians to experience victorious living because they have the wrong diagnosis. My diagnosis is a legal problem, and what I need is a legal solution. I need to get the legal payment, put my record books in heaven. I need God to be persuaded not to hang. So I have to have Jesus stand between me and the Father and and hold his anger and wrath at bay. And and so this whole distortion keeps us in fear of God. And it has led to the rise of godless humanism, because it is actually much better to believe in a world that runs on design law naturally without a creator than to believe in a creator who runs the universe like Nero. And which one's more true? Yeah, and which one's actually more true? The evolutionary view of natural law is actually closer to the truth than the imperial law construct of an angry God who just punishes you for breaking rules. That's actually further from the truth than the laws of nature are. So the whole world is infected with this idea. If you like Revelation's metaphor, the whole world is drunk on the wine of Babylon. The false doctrines, the false teachings, and this is it. And it's infecting our own, our own denominational churches infected with it. I like it when you said, what is true justice for somebody who's been murdered? True justice would be to have his life back. Yes, absolutely. The true justice is the restoration, making things right again. There's a whole bunch of really fun quotes I have in here from Scripture um, teaching us that, that sin, God is not the source of inflicted death. Wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. But here's one from something called Ministry of Healing. Sickness, suffering, and death are works of an antagonistic power. Satan is the destroyer. God is the restorer. Amen. God destroys no one. The sinner destroys himself by his own impenitence. Faith I live by, page 58. Read the scriptures carefully, and you will find that Christ spent the largest part of his ministry in restoring the suffering and 
and afflicted to health. Thus he threw back upon Satan the reproach of the evil which the enemy of all good had originated. Satan is the destroyer. Christ is the restorer. And go, and there's, and there's many more quotes like this in the lesson, if you'd like to get those notes. And then I've got some quotes on biblical justice. Depend, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. By doing what? Punishing? No. Biblical justice is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. And there's a whole bunch of quotes that support that in the lesson we didn't get to. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so blown away by the beauty of your character, by how you've designed the universe to run, and we realize that we are privileged to live in a time in Earth's history when enough truth has been revealed that our minds and hearts can be set free from this distortion, this deep infection of an imperial law construct that makes you out to be the source of inflicted pain and suffering. We reject that, Lord. We come back to worship you who are the creator, the designer of all reality, who is love. And we ask that you will send your spirit to take what Christ has achieved in our behalf, to not only let us comprehend it, but to experience it in our hearts, that we can love you and others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.